Welcome to our podcast, Land of People, everybody. I am Melissa Kamara. I am a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. I'm Clay Traunick. I am extension faculty, a specialist in uh, fire ecosystems. Yeah, we do this podcast so that you guys can hear from uh, mentors of ours and and colleagues and and really trying to ask people to tell their story of how they connect to the land and really through their life and work. We are opening this season with speaking to the scholars out there here in Hawaii, um, talking first about indigeneity, which is awesome. We talked to two of our professors here um, on Hawaii Island and at UH Manoa about that. And today we're switching a bit to talking about climate and water. And this is all in the context so we can have a greater understanding of the issues, the resources, the concerns out there before we dive into speaking with people in Maui Nui, before the ongoing catastrophes and since. So this is really to help frame um, our understanding of some of the real big, big issues, you know, and one thing that's come up, as we all know here, is just climate change and climate warming and what are those effects, if any, on Hawaiian islands um, vis-a-vis drought and possibly wildfire. Um, those are big questions that Clay's had to answer, I think, like 25, 30 times, <laughs> maybe in the past month or so. I don't We've know. been spending a lot of time talking about, you know, fuels and vegetation. And now we're looking at climate and we thought, well, there's really only one person I want to talk to about climate. And that would be Dr. Tom John Beluca, former professor of mine and um, director of the Water Resources Research Center and geography professor, right? Yeah, I've worked with Tom because he's got the data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, no, I mean, the data, like for rainfall, temperature, all this, these climate variables, weather variables that go into understanding the things that other people are studying. So it's really like these foundational information. And so obviously for fire, right, we need to know what these historical patterns have been and how that drives fire risk, but also just plant ecology more broadly, Mm -hmm. right? Like what Mm -hmm. are these factors that kind of drive distributions of plants? What sites are going to be suitable for these places to persist? I mean, I'm obviously thinking up, you know, up on the mountain a little bit more. Um, But then all of that has consequences for the water that we are, you know, that is kind of the center center of life here in Hawaii and everywhere else. And I think that's been obviously the focus of of Tom's work. But what's cool, we got to talk about the challenges of just understanding all these processes is a very complex. So like what contributes to the amount of water that, you know, as it falls from the sky, getting into the ground and what, what are all the processes affecting that? How do you measure it? Um, and what is so unique about Hawaii and, and many of those aspects? So we get into a lot of the science around that. So we just, you know, fair warning, <laughs> we're going to d- dive deep, which yeah. is, I think, really cool. Um, understanding the atmospheric processes. Um, and all the different variables and all the different timescales in which you can start looking at what weather may or may not do in one season, one day, five years, 10 years, on and on and on. I think you'd be humble about this. I I, I think he does a great job of, <laughs> he's of amazing. talking about it. It's not, you know, yeah. I mean, he's talking about very, very, very complex processes in a very personable and approachable way. So don't be, don't be too afraid. Yeah. Don't be scared by it because I will say as a non-scientist, I took his class like 
a million years ago. And I just remember what an amazing teacher he is. And I think you're going to hear that on this interview. And we are going to talk about ecology and we are going to touch very briefly on water. And I think we'll get into a bit more of that later on with some of our other guests. This work that he's built up is it's so foundational to our understanding of the environment here and in so many different aspects. It's, it's kind of incredible. Yeah, definitely. And so with that, we'll introduce our next guest, Dr. Tom John Beluka, professor in the Department of Geography and Environment and also the director of the Water Resources Research Center at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Well, Dr. John Maluka, welcome to our show. I guess we should uh, start off here by, um, can we all say how we know each other? Because we're friends in this room. What about you, Clay? So we have a project right now that we're working on, try to like map real-time fire. Um, but I think I started bugging Tom probably through through Matt Lucas. Maddie was working on this very cool land cover product and brought mm. in Tom on his committee. He wanted to look at before and after fires. Dr. John Beluka here. Tom was my um, microclimatology uh, professor back in the olden days in geography department. In the olden days. I want to say 1997, maybe. I don't know. Somewhere around there. And I just remember like going out to Cunia and going to the old field weather station and like measuring radiation. <laughs> it was really... <laughs> Like so far out of my, my my wheelhouse, past and present. And it was like, wow, this is hardcore. This is like actual real science. Holy shit, what am I what am I doing? But it was like it was it was a great class. It was like I learned so much. So that's how we know each other. Um I remember the class you were in, Melissa, and I believe yes. Marigold was in that class too. He was. Forestry yeah. manager for Oahu. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So both of you have gone on to great things. And yeah, I remember that class. I taught it. I taught that course, course many times, but yeah. some classes stand out. And yeah, that was a good class. It was a fun one. Um, I couldn't have put it, my finger on which year it was, though. So I'm glad you you, you can. I'm not sure if that's right. <laughs> I don't in know. The 90s. In the 90s, in the mid to late 90s. But yeah, Tom, you were really fun because, I mean, for someone who's not, um, a scientist, which I am certainly not. Um, I always say that. I try to correct people who claim that I am. Um, it made it really accessible. So uh, that was really cool. And there are things that we're going to ask you about in this interview that I still remember from that class. So I mean, this is jumping ahead to you, but are you still teaching, Tom? I have not taught for the last few years because uh, now my job is to be the director of Water Resources Research Center. Yeah. So it doesn't take me much time for teaching and I I miss it. I do miss teaching. Yeah. I did teach for around 35 years and I've been at the University of Hawaii for 46 years. So. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> the first five and a half years as a graduate student and then on the faculty ever since then. So you can use that as a segue to, to back up all yeah. the way. Cause usually we start off by just asking like how in your experiences growing up that really like connected you or where you sort of pointed you towards the work that you're doing now. You know, it's so long ago that that's a tough question for me, but <laughs> um, you know, I do remember uh, this. I grew up in an urban area. I grew up in Baltimore city by the city and I was raised by my oh, East parents. coast. Yeah. Raised by my mom's parents. My mom passed away when I was very young and my 
mom's parents took me and my sister. So it was an urban area, but we did have a, a woods nearby, a wooded area that I really loved to hang out in and, you know, just explore. So that was kind of one early connection with land. Uh, my dad was raised on a farm in Louisiana, and I used to spend a month there with him. And early on, when I was very young, with my grandparents there in a very rural, very remote area in Louisiana, I got in touch with the land in a different way there. But I would say, you know, what influenced me the most from those years was probably my grandfather, who uh, was also a city kid, grew up in, born and raised in, in the, you know, in the center of Baltimore City. But he was just really good at fixing things. And we never, you know, replaced things. We just fixed them. You know, they, yeah. my grandparents kind of had to survive the Great Depression as a young, young family. Mm -hmm. And I think it just influenced them for the rest of their lives. And they uh, they kept things. They didn't hoard. They just didn't buy new things because yeah. they could fix everything. Right. So I think we had the same washer and dryer the entire time I was with my grandparents from the time I was, you know, three until I left for college because my grandfather would just fix it. And That's awesome. I learned, I learned a lot from him. And, that you know, that does connect to my career now because we do a lot of field measurements with instruments. And I always enjoy doing that kind of work. So I, I give my grandfather credit for that. Yeah, the tinkering with all the gear. I think that's something hopefully <laughs> we, can, we can talk about because it's <laughs> when you talk to, you know, it's not, not you I've talked about, just folks from your lab and they just explain some of the challenges of working in these environments, keeping these things going in some yeah. of these environments. I think that it's very easy to take for granted our ability to kind of track the weather here. Um, Absolutely. Uh, it's easier now than it used to be because the the technology is so much better. Yeah. But it's also more complicated and things still break. Things still go go bad and have to be fixed. Can, yeah. can we talk about the weather stations? You have different networks, right? Yeah. Like there are different networks of stations out there. And so maybe, uh, maybe a starting question is when did you sort of see – that you need, we needed more here. I mean, mm -hmm. this gets into like what yeah. Hawaii is about weather-wise and like what, how did that kind of really, you know, inspire you to start doing the stuff that you've been doing over the years? Yeah. I got interested in measuring, um, doing field work actually after I joined the faculty. Um, so I didn't really get much of that and I wasn't very interested in doing field work when I was a grad student. And so I mainly focused on, you know, computer programming and writing models and analyzing data. And my feeling was there was lots, there's lots of data out there. Why, why should I bother uh, generating more data? I can just work on the data that are there. But um, when I started teaching, I thought it would be useful for my students to um, get some hands-on experience measuring things. So I got some money. I got a grant from, small grant from the university and a, and a grant from NSF to uh, buy some instruments and I started playing around with them and it turned out I really enjoyed it <laughs> and it was that was I realized that was the fun stuff so from there I started incorporating it more into my research um, and so it wasn't just about measuring weather to know what the weather was it was research about processes in the environment for example it's important to know how different plants and different land covers affect how much water goes back to the atmosphere or how fast does water evaporate and transpire through through that system and return back to the atmosphere. It's important because it helps to determine how much water is still on the land. Mm -hmm. And so we mm -hmm. know how much 
rainfall comes in because we can measure that and we need to know how much evaporates and goes back to the atmosphere you know then we know how much is left how much is there mm -hmm. and so a lot of our research a lot of my research was at that time was focused on how changing land cover changes the hydrologic processes changes the water cycle so we put weather stations up because that uh, provides a lot of the information that we need so i started doing my first research with those kinds of stations on haleakala and that was in june 1988 mm -hmm. so that's a long long time ago 35 years ago those stations that i installed in june 88 are still running uh, they're not the same equipment has been the equipment's been replaced many times and upgraded and improved but those stations have operated with a few small interruptions over all those years and um and for our listeners who don't necessarily know where these are let's just imagine i mean i think they're up at like seven eight that nine thousand foot elevation in very very exposed place extreme weather extreme cold all of that right we're talking like very hard to get to if you had to hike there <laughs> hard, things break right i mean what do they actually look like those first few stations we put in were actually pretty easy to get to. They went okay. up. The, the highest elevation one was at about 7,000 feet near the okay. entrance to Haleakala National Park, um, which does get cold and does get, you know, um, does get fairly severe weather at times. But then we quickly, uh, soon after that, I should say, uh, we started putting in additional stations and we, they went all the way up to the summit of Haleakala, which is mm -hmm. much colder and more exposed and so forth. And then eventually we put stations. Uh, those those initial stations were all on the what we would call the front country of the park. It's mm -hmm. the area right. that is served by the road where you can drive up. And the stations were all more or less along the road. So it was pretty easy to get to all of them. But in I think around 1991 or 92, we started installing stations on the windward side of the park. Right. And those are much more. Those are the ones you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the far side. Yeah. Way over the back country. Yeah. So these are on the opposite side of the Haleakala crater. Mm -hmm. And you know, so you to get there, we had to hike uh, from from the lookout, you know, near the road down into the crater, up and down across the crater and then up the other side to the rim and then down again into the rainforest. So the most distant station, uh, which is we still we still have equipment there, is at Big Bog, and it's at about 5,000 feet elevation on the windward side. And when we hiked there a few times, and one time was with your husband, Chuck, <laughs> uh, no, two times, twice with him, because he was such an incredible hiker. Um, and it would take us... I think on the order of 17 or 18 hours or maybe longer wow. yeah. to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And one of those times, actually, this is recalling what uh, my husband, Chuck Kamara and Trey Menard mentioned to me, um, was actually you guys going into a tropical storm. Um, and you gotta uh, get the measurements. Uh, yeah. So. The question, this is from Chuck, actually, a question he has for you. As you guys went into this tropical storm and were hiking in the blinding sideways rain, <laughs> is 
our audience wants to know, like, what are the pros and cons of wearing um, cotton jeans and bringing glass (laughs) spaghetti jar full of sauce (laughs) in a 60 pound bag as you're going? I I don't know what. (laughs) What that's all about. Uh, but I, I will point out that um, it was not a tropical storm. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I exaggerate. Point. Exaggerate. <laughs> it was a storm, though. It was a winter okay. storm. And it mm. was, um, and there were, that according to Lloyd Loop, who was a longtime scientist in the park and mentor to many and you know, uh, important figure in Hawaii science, especially environmental science. According to Lloyd, that was the worst storm in the park that he had ever seen after having worked there for 17 years. Yeah. So we got stranded uh, up there. We were told to expect 100 mile an hour winds. There there was very intense rainfall to the point where I was afraid the, uh, you know, the shelter that we were fortunate to get into might wash off the uh might be washed off the slope um we were stuck there for several days so make that spaghetti go far i I think there was some discussion about (laughs) tying yourself to the fence or going getting going to the cabin but i you know that's all like secondhand so (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wouldn't believe any of that (laughs) (laughs) i remember seeing you though after that and it it looked you guys it was rough It was rough. I was just glad that, you know, you all made it out safely. And did you actually get to the weather station? We did. We were on our way. We were done. And and actually, the last station we stopped at, I remember seeing blue sky. Oh, wow. And by the time we finished there, it had completely changed. It got much colder. It was raining hard. Oh, okay. It was fog. You know, fog was blown yeah. vegetation. And uh, Trey Menard and I were lucky that we saw that Chuck Camara had pointed out a shelter that we'd never stayed in on when we were on our way there. And on the way out, yeah, we were able to find it. It wasn't right on the trail, so it was not easy to find, but we were able to find it. And it was just about dark when we found it raining Man. sideways. And oh my gosh. It would have been a very miserable night if we had not found that. No, so. for sure. For sure. <laughs> the memories, stories from the field. Yeah, stories from the field. And those days, there were actual physical data loggers, which not anymore. You get, do you upload that stuff remotely or do you still have to go out there and? Yeah. So a data logger is a, a specialized kind of computer that is used to collect information from sensors uh, at mm-hmm. our weather stations. And so we still yeah. have data loggers. They're very important. So the data loggers can be programmed to collect data at a you know, certain interval, to process it in a certain way, convert it from electrical signal into uh, you know the measurement units of whatever it is we're measuring. Those are really important and they can store the data. In those days, we stored the data in the data logger and we had to go there to some of the stations anyway. We had to go to the station in order to get the data. Yeah. Uh, now all of our stations are telemetered. That means we can contact the station, collect the station data right here. So Amazing. it's set up to be done automatically wow. and our stations are are all measuring data every and recording every five minutes and transmitting the data every 15 minutes. Did you have to learn any like hard lessons where you, I mean, it's like, I just think about the variables that you're able to measure, but when you're deciding, like, we're going to hike this stuff out there, like, does that change the calculus and like what all the instrumentation you want to put out? And then where's there, like, what did that, did that, was there an adaptation process there where you're like, oh, we wish we got that and you change things as you go, or was it pretty like a standard set? 
the stuff. We usually didn't have to hike the stuff out. So uh, we worked with uh, Haleakala National Park and uh, they were, you know, very, very generous partners and they arranged for helicopter transport for us and equipment. So we didn't oh, cool. hike to the station when we first went there and installed it. We didn't carry all the stuff out there. It was We were brought by helicopter and the equipment was brought. So, so now we... Usually we're not in that situation where we had to, um, you know, triage based on how much we could carry. The instruments have changed as far as like the quality, but is the type of data that you were really interested in collecting, has that changed based like as you kind of study these systems and the, the, the you know, patterns and the different vegetation types? Yes and no. A lot of the things we measure now are the same as what we measured in 1988. Uh, the instrumentation mm -hmm. is better. So the data are better, I think, uh, in general, and more reliable. We have learned a lot of things over the years, so that helps us maintain the stations better and make sure that data, you know, are continuous as much as possible. For example, we we know that the relative humidity sensors, no matter what kind, what model, what brand, they're the most uh, vulnerable to malfunctioning or mm -hmm. going out of calibration. Mm -hmm. So now we put two temperature and relative humidity sensors in all of our stations so that we have a better chance of having good data anytime. Right. So, but we have the problem now that if they're different, we, we have to decide which one's good and which one's bad. <laughs> Maybe need a third. We need a third, the tiebreaker. <laughs> One of my mentors was uh, Paul Eckern, and he did do a lot of field work during the, this was during the time I was a student. And he told me, um, yeah, d don't have two of the same sensor at the same place. <laughs> he was kind of joking, but he, he <laughs> right, right. You don't want to have to make the decision. It's just yeah. going to make your life harder. <laughs> the way yeah, he put yeah. it was, he said, a man with a, a watch always knows what time it is. A man with two watches is never sure. <laughs> oh, man. That kind of leads me to another question. Just kind of curious how you how you ended up at UH. What drew you out here? So I was a geography graduate student at the University of Miami, where I had gotten my bachelor's degree. And I was just about to finish my master's degree. My advisor, my mentor, Harm DeBlay, asked me where I was going to go on for a PhD. And I didn't, hadn't even thought about it, to be honest. And he was a, a well-connected guy. So he, he had already thought about this, kind of staged this. And he said, well, I know you surf. And if you want to stay in the U.S., there's only certain universities that you would probably want to go to. So he started listing them off, starting in Florida, where we were, and going around the Gulf Coast and up the Pacific Coast, you know, California and so forth, and kind of listing off all the universities and all the departments and all the professors in those departments and basically check just crossing them all off and saying, now that leaves us with Hawaii. And he then dialed up nice. his friend, who was the chair of the geography department at the University of Hawaii, and uh, told him I was looking for a place to do my PhD. And the next thing I know, I was on my way to Hawaii. So, yeah, I had been to Hawaii a couple of times before, and I had an interest in Hawaii to start with, but it wasn't right. about my scholastic interest. It was more about just the place. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a probably a similar story for a lot of people. Um, when <laughs> yeah. then you get here and then you see like, you know, I mean, again, from like climate and, and vegetation, it's like so incredible the what it sets you up to kind of look at and, and yeah. help understand the rest of the world, really. Absolutely. And, you know, I wish I could say, oh, yeah, I knew that Hawaii would be the perfect model system to do the kind of work I wanted to do. That's not true. I learned all about that after I came here. Right. So it's been fortunate for me. But I would say that 
for the kind of work I do, there is no place better in the world. There's no place I'd rather do this kind of work. This is yeah. really a super interesting place to work on these kinds of environmental problems that combine climate and weather, water processes, uh, the terrestrial ecology, the plants, the soils, and so forth. So we just have all of the diversity that you would find across an entire continent we have here in a you know relatively small area. And so there's, you know, it's just a great place to work. Gosh, I'm like so tempted to go into like the personal question. Keep it personal. Well, yeah, maybe I'll ask that first. But I do want to know just from your own, you know, feeling, is there a place in Hawaii that, that you love the most or that really sort of bridges everything that you enjoy studying and or, or not? Um, there are many places. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, one of the places that really stands out to me is as a favorite place, really, it's not a place where... We do our research, it, but it is part of like part of getting there. Mm -hmm. and it is uh, you may be familiar with Paliku, which is um, a place on the uh, far eastern side of Haleakala Crater, and yeah. it's, you can actually see it in the great distance from the uh, the lookout at the summit. There are two cabins there, and one of them is uh, for it can be reserved for any visitors. And the other one is reserved for um, for park employees and, and and other people that they authorize. So I've been able to stay in that one, that that the so-called ranger cabin, and I love staying there. It's built in the 30s, I think, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, during the Depression when you know there was a conservation corps, the uh, building uh, infrastructure in national parks, and so it's a it's a 1930s style cabin it has a kitchen it has a stove a wood stove and a um, bunch of bunks it must but it is yeah it's really special it's a nice place and i even got to take my son there uh for a few days when i was going to do maintenance on some of my stations and we stayed in the yeah. cabin for a few days which was very memorable well and for those who've never been there it's so dramatic because you're hiking across haleakala crater which is like the surface of the moon you know, and barren lava flows, some vegetation, just these weird looking silver sword plants for anyone who's never seen them. <laughs> what did Keikuhi call them? They're like, they look like urchins. And then eventually you, you go through different, many different ecological zones, but then, or some, a few, and then you end up in this pasture, this very like lush, you know, so the eastern side of the crater where, you know, you get this just dramatic difference in in temperature in feeling and then the poly that's the name polyku in the this the mm -hmm. steep cliffs with that cabin right it's yeah it's my one of my favorite places too spectacular yeah, it's a special place but there there are so many other places that are special for different reasons but yeah i'm sure everybody who's been out in the landscape in hawaii has Feels the same way. There's so many special places. Yeah. So many. You know, I was thinking about Haleakala and you're, you know, putting the stations in the focus there. Mm -hmm. And I always felt just that coming from ecology, like so many little nooks and crannies are just these unique spaces. Mm -hmm. And I'm like mm -hmm. curious how you, I think maybe from the climatological perspective, I can see how that transition across the crater would, would be interesting. But what was it really like that started getting you to focus there as like a, a place to to dive into? Yeah, Dr. Lloyd Loop, he was, um, he's really a special person, as I mentioned, and he is uh, an ecologist, and he really led the charge on identifying and controlling invasive plants in Hawaii before anyone else, or at least 
simultaneously with with others. You know, he was very, uh, very much a leader early on in that effort to fight um, and control invasive species. Um, and so he he saw the value in this in the climate data for ecological management and ecological research. And he was really a kind of a benefactor in a way. He was able to steer money to us to keep this uh, network going and building and growing. Whereas, you know, I put the stations in initially for six months. That was my intent. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, the ones on the leeward side, the ones I put in in June. Yeah. And so I called up Lloyd and said, well, we're all done. I'm going to come over and take the instruments. <laughs> And remove them and get you know get them out of your way and he said no 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 don't do that <laughs> and i said well the project's over we don't have any more money and he said oh let me worry about that i'll find the money and so, oh. amazing so I, I can't really claim the vision you know he had the vision to um maintain this network and grow the network and, and he knew that the data would be valuable for many many things and he was right and so over the years i've you know i come to understand that better than i did at the time so we first expanded up the mountain on the leeward side as i said and then lloyd was the one who got the money and uh, encouraged us to put stations on the windward side and he picked out the sites um, interesting he said i want one you know put one here put one here but we actually put four in one of those four was uh knocked over we think by a, a lightning strike that severed one of the guy wires so when we we recovered the the damaged equipment there we we never replaced it but hmm. three of the four are still in place and we will be replacing the equipment in all three of those in the next year with brand new you know better equipment what appeared to you to be kind of the key questions there like and I asked that because I remember talking to a mentor here, Don Drake, once who I think Chuck might have worked with him as well. And he's just like, oh, I came to Hawaii. I thought all the questions would be answered, you know, sort of from eco forest ecology stuff. And they realize like there's so much to, to look at, you know. And so I'm just curious what like kind of emerged to you as these kind of fundamental needs or just critical needs. Well, what got me working on Haleakala in the first place was was the trade wind inversion. So the trade wind inversion is something I learned about, you know, as a graduate student that is very important in controlling our weather here in Hawaii. So that is a, a layer. It's not always at the, exactly the same elevation, but it's around six or 7,000 feet or 8,000 feet. Usually it's around 7,000 feet. It's uh, only a few hundred feet thick usually. And it is uh, important because within that layer, the temperature is actually getting warmer, getting higher as you go up in elevation. Whereas most places and, you know, all the areas below the inversion layer and all the areas above the inversion layer, as you go higher up, the temperature gets lower, right? It gets colder as you go up. But this little, this layer, and there's, you know, a important reason why it's there, but it's it's found throughout the trade wind belt. So we call it the trade wind inversion. It doesn't really have much to do with the trade winds itself. It's really just that it's in the trade wind belt. It's kind of uh, both the trade winds and the trade wind inversion are produced by air subsiding, coming down downward from the upper atmosphere in this zone. And um, the reason it's important is that it makes it very hard for air to rise through that layer. So it kind of caps any rising motion. And why is that important? Because rising motion is the way that clouds are formed. And without clouds, we wouldn't get precipitation. We wouldn't get rainfall. Most clouds that we see are formed where air is rising and that those clouds then if they develop well enough, get deep enough and so forth, will produce rainfall or other kinds of precipitation. And so for us here in Hawaii, 
most of our clouds will only develop up to that 7,000 foot level most of the time. If the, the trade wind inversion is there, they won't develop any higher. And therefore, the clouds are not as, as thick as they would be. And therefore, mm. they don't produce as much rainfall as they would. So if you look at um, areas away from the mountains, and especially on the leeward side, you know, rainfall totals are generally pretty low. We have some pretty dry areas. And one of the main reasons for that is that the trade wind inversion prevents clouds from developing to greater thickness and to produce more rain. Uh, we get spectacularly high rainfall amounts on the windward sides, even with that limitation on the, the cloud thickness, because the cloud is constantly being formed and producing rain because the trade winds are blowing upslope. And right. Seeing that upward flow that creates that cloud and maintains that cloud there all the time. So just raining all the time. And so we get really spectacular rains. One of our stations has, you know, average rainfall of 400 inches a year. Think about that. <laughs> is it true you guys, because this is the, the, I feel like the fallacy that Haleakala is actually wetter than Waialeale on do we have to say that for the record here? <laughs> Kauai. Don't come yeah. after us, Kauai. But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get everybody on Kauai uh, angry and uh, <laughs> we'll have friends on Maui. But no, uh, we do have a station at Big Bog. It's a place, you know, that we, we don't we don't know of a Hawaiian name for it. So we're, we're just calling it Big Bog. And when we analyzed the data for the Rainfall Atlas of Hawaii, we got a slightly higher average re annual rainfall for Big Bog than Waiale Island. But okay. it's so close that I would say it's basically they're tied. They're yeah. tied. You know, okay. if, you another, if you picked another 30 year period, Waiale Island right. would probably be higher. You know? We have Switzerland on the line here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we could say for sure is that it's unlikely that either of those places is the wettest, rainiest um, place in Hawaii because those two places happen to have rain gauges. Yeah, so, right, 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 right. We have a rain gauge at, just happened to have a rain gauge at yeah. the rain yeah, yeah. place in the islands. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it too. Okay, so I'm going to pull us back for our lay listeners out there and for folks outside of Hawaii who are listening to our climate discussion for the very, very first time. Um, if you can, um, for us, uh, Tom, could you just paint the picture at the 30,000 foot level of the, some of the most significant climate changes we should be expecting here in Hawaii. And I know that's such a complex and hard question to ask, but maybe you can, can try to take a crack at it. <laughs> it is a, a hard question, but it's one that we'd really like to have answers for. And so, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of smart people, including my graduate students uh, over the years and postdocs and other scholars that work with us to address these questions. And we've tried to do it in various ways. So I start off by saying, for sure, we know it is getting warmer. And we've studied this and we've analyzed temperature change in Hawaii. And we know it's going to continue to get warmer. So that's going to have a lot of effects. Most of them are bad. Uh, for example, warmer air can mean under certain conditions mean the air is drier in terms of relative humidity and that's going to produce conditions that are favorable for wildfires so that's mm -hmm. one you know very obvious one very obvious to us right now here in hawaii because we're you know still recovering from the shock of the horrific fires on maui three weeks ago and that was driven by 
very strong winds, low humidity and high temperatures. In fact, it was the hottest day of the year on Maui mm -hmm. up to that point. It was the hottest day of 2023. Yeah. So if we continue to get higher and higher temperatures, you know, it's likely that we're going to have conditions for these kinds of fires more often. So we know it's getting warmer and it will continue to get warmer for the foreseeable future. The bigger question, though, I think, is what effect global climate change will have on Hawaii's rainfall. And that's a much harder question to answer. We can look at it in various ways. One is to look at the trends to see if any changes, you know, have already occurred and what which way things are changing and say, well, maybe that is a sign of what to expect in the future. We can also use climate models that basically simulate the climate of the entire Earth and then use other models to take that output and kind of zoom into Hawaii to look at it at a higher resolution, look at it more mm -hmm. specifically at what, what those changes mean for Hawaii. So that's called downscaling. So we've done both of those things. And for the trends in general, it has been getting drier in Hawaii for quite a while. Actually, winter rainfall has been declining since the mid 19th century. So like around 1850, uh, it's been declining since then. And that might or might not have anything to do with you know, contemporary climate change. And if for the past 100 years where we have a good instrumental record, uh, there's generally decreasing rainfall. And for the past several decades, especially the past 30 or 40 years, it's been particularly dry. There have been some wet years in there. Yeah but it's been generally very dry. And so that is one indication. Now, on the other hand, with the air getting warmer and the ocean getting warmer, there's more water vapor in the air. Mm. There is more humidity. And that means that when the conditions are right, we expect to see more intense rainfall, bigger extreme events. Interesting. Is that possible that we could get decreasing rainfall and yet still get bigger extreme high events at the same time? Yes, it is possible. Right. So like your overall average for the or cumulative for the year might be declining, but for a single event, we just get hammered and we, which we've been seeing. I mean, that's, I think some of the scarier events, more recent weather events we've seen, I mean, until Lahaina really, but uh, these things are kind of out of our control, right? Like what happened on Kauai in 2018, for example, 49 plus inches in 24 hours. 49.7 inches in 24 hours. So that is a new United States record for 24 yeah. hour rainfall. <laughs> it's one of the highest 24 hour rainfalls ever recorded anywhere in the world. And just think about that. It's over four feet of rain in, in the course of a day. Yeah. So you don't have to be a hydrologist to realize what a terrible consequences there were for that. Oh, yeah. And that was, you know, five years ago and five and a half years ago. And Kauai is still, you know, recovering. Yeah. Northern part of Kauai is still recovering from that. So, yeah, that's a good, good example of what we think will happen in the future. And it is possible for the average rainfall to be going down in these these big events to become bigger. And with, that may be happening, but we don't have enough data to really show that that's a trend. Most of the mm. analyses that have done been done on extreme rainfall show mixed results. So yeah, the jury's out a bit, but I do think eventually this signal will show and we will see these bigger events. So Rainfall change overall is, in my mind, is uh, going to be affected by two things. One I just mentioned is the humidity being higher because the air is warmer and the ocean surrounding us is warmer. So there'll be more water in the air. Mm -hmm. But the trade wind inversion that I mentioned earlier is uh, the main feature that controls what we call the atmospheric stability. Yeah, That is the condition of the atmosphere that either enhances or inhibits uh, the development of clouds and rainfall. And so... 
The trade wind inversion is a stability feature. It makes the atmosphere more stable, which means it limits cloud development. So is the trade wind inversion going to be stronger or going to be there more often? So, you know, currently and in the past, you know, it's there most of the time, but not all of the time. So in the future, will it be there, you know, more or will it be there less? That will then tell us whether the atmosphere is becoming more stable or unstable. So most of the modeling and uh, other analysis indicates a more stable atmosphere in the future, which means less rainfall. Yeah. And that has been happening already, which may or may not be caused by climate change. So so we have one thing changing, the humidity changing in a way that's going to make it rainier, and we have the stability changing in a way that's going to make it less rainy. So the, really, the question is, which one is going to be uh, the overall stronger influence on average rainfall? Influence, yeah, yeah. And we don't know yet. Yeah, it's interesting too. A fire was affected by stability as well, right? So these mm-hmm. unstable conditions make it more erratic winds and things like that. So yeah. that, it's like a big, big part of fire weather too. And I, I don't know that our fire events are usually short, so short-lived when, when they're doing these days out forecasts and looking at the, those kinds of trends. But I mean, I think for most lay people, they're imagining less rain equals drought, right? Potentially. And, and, and I think we have some questions about drought. Well, I mean, I'm like a question, well, maybe it's a comment too, but in the sense that I think those of us that work with these models are like, well, what do we say? So for example, we've got this n- new fire model. Again, this is really work that's really standing on your shoulders, right? So we are only able to do this because of the, the rainfall history that you've developed. But when we look at the historical variability in this fire risk, that monthly resolution, if you want to call it that, it allows us to see like, wow, it's up and down all the time, right? And it's and, and so you get this really big ranges for any given spot in the islands, right? It can be really high risk and it'd be really low risk. I mean, some places are always low if it's like, you know, the windward wet upper elevation, for example. The other people that are looking at these trends and sort of struggling is like, with plants, I work with a lot of botanists and they're looking at this as like, well, is it the annual change they're less concerned about with versus like a couple dry years? You know what I mean? And so I, I guess, Tom, like, how do you communicate to p- people who want to use this information? And, and, and maybe the piggyback of that is like, where would you like to go? We have these mean trends, but then what's the variability around that? I mean, that's the rain bomb question, right? It's like, how much is it going to swing up or down for a given day or a given year even? And then you could ask that question at different timescales too, right? Is it the day to day? Is it the month to month, season to season, year to year? And they all have different possible answers. answers. We don't have good answers uh, for all. But, you know, from our earlier discussion, I would say that indicates more variability because on a day to day time frame, you're going to get you're going to be drier, you know, on the average days, and then you're mm-hmm. going to get well, on the wet days they are going to be wetter than before. Mm-hmm. So you right. get more variability in that way. Uh, so that's, you know, going to have maybe fewer storms and, but those storms will be real whoppers, right? They'll be yeah. real big ones on the longer time scales, like seasonal one, one thing to that I'm sure Clay knows very well is that one of the reasons we have, you know, really significantly high fire risk in certain parts of the islands is is partly because of the seasonality of the rainfall. So we have a dry season and a wet season here in Hawaii. Everybody who lives here knows that, If especially if you live in these dry areas. In the wet areas, actually, there isn't much seasonality. If you go up into those very high rainfall areas, it really doesn't get dry at any time of the year. But these dry areas get rainfall pretty much only in the winter months, mm-hmm. in the wet season right. months, and almost no rain at all unless there's a tropical storm or a hurricane, which is pretty rare. So we get reason that gives us more fire hazard and Clay could tell this much better than me is that 
the fuel load builds up when it's rainy mm -hmm. during the wet season and then dries out in the dry season becomes uh, becomes a hazard. Which is exactly why we need like your kind of work because yeah. this is dependent on that understanding of this system and in the tropics more generally. And why also we can't just like grab these tools that are made for like mainland systems. Cause I, yeah. now actually with all these invasive grasses everywhere, people are paying attention to this and, you know, in other parts of the country, but typically right. we just look about drought. Right. That, and, and here we have, we have this kind of dual, this kind of two punch <laughs> problem. I think this is an important question, but I don't have a good answer for it. Is you know, will uh, will climate change give us greater seasonality? Will it make the dry season drier mm -hmm. and the wet season wetter, mm -hmm. or will it be the other way around? Um, yeah. there's, there's actually evidence both ways, and I think more of the evidence right now is that it's going to reduce the seasonality. But I would not take that too seriously at this point because we just don't know it very well. After seasonality, then I would look at the year-to-year -year variability. And that's very, very high in Hawaii because we're so strongly influenced by El Nino and right. Nino, and so cycle. And so um that that is a you know one of the big questions in atmospheric sciences in climate science is how is global warming going to influence ENSO? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of conflicting answers on that as well. So Again, we don't have, you know, really solid, confident answers about that. But, you know, what could happen is we could get, you know, more frequent or bigger swings in this El Nino and La Nina. Our El Ninos, you know, one of the biggest associations is the wind, our winters, our wet seasons are very dry during mm -hmm. El Nino years. La Ninas are wet generally. And so that is not always the case. And there is even a line of thought right now that perhaps because of climate change, that connection between El Nino, La Nina and our rainfall in Hawaii may be changing. <laughs> so just to add more complication to it. Yeah, no, there is no straight answer on this. <laughs> well, and it's usually like the kind of safe messaging, right? Is and actually which what really spurred some of the outreach, public outreach we've doing, been doing in fire was, I think was 2015 or 2016. There was a big one predicted and we kind of try to get in front of it because we know that it leads to these wintertime droughts. And that's actually Pacific wide. It gets all the way out right. to like Palau and Yap and Micronesia as well. At the same time, the summers have the opposite connection. So El Nino summers are generally wetter Right. Than in the past. And mm -hmm. but, so this year, you know, we have this, we're going into a, looks like a pretty strong El Nino and we had a very dry summer. So it right. did not act like we might've expected. Yeah. Um, and so again, it might, that connection may be changing. Um, then after you, after the interannual, we have decadal scale variability. <laughs> so yeah. that's like in 10 year cycles mm -hmm. or 10 or 20 or 30 year cycles. And we do have a very strong uh, signal at that at, at that time scale. One of the ways to characterize it is by comparing it with the uh, Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is an index of weather or climate variability. In this case, it's sea surface temperature differences between the northern hemisphere extreme western part of the Pacific to the eastern part of the Pacific. So like Japan versus California coast. And that flips like every 20 years or so, 10 or 20 years. And so that has also a big influence on Hawaii's rainfall. So we have this variability, pretty high variability in rainfall driven by these different modes of variability in the atmosphere. 
that affect our weather on all these different timescales. Just on understanding like you're in this larger system, the whole Pacific Basin is like having this influence on us. Yeah. Can we switch gears a little bit? Because I do want to talk about vegetation (laughs) and atmosphere because I find this really interesting um, because I like I like plants. I'm around a lot of plant people. It seems like we're always talking about plants on this podcast. They're good to talk about. Yeah, yeah, we love them. Um, So different land covers, right? Um, This is so interesting to me because, you know, we talk about weeds, like, for example, guinea grass or guava, vivi, whatever, whatever it might be. And native species like ohia, do they even have a, have an effect on the hy- hydrology of a given area? All things being equal, temperature elevation, all those kinds of things. If if that's just if it's a difference in the vegetation type, does that affect, you know, how much water is going into the aquifer, how much water is going into the streams, how much water is in the air? It's all of that. Is there a difference? Absolutely. So the vegetation uh, type, the density of the vegetation, the height, the species that are in, you know, species composition, all influence water processes in profound ways. And Mm -hmm. we became very interested in that, my group, partly because of people like Lloyd Loop, who, you know, pointed out all the all the problems with invasive species. And so we started getting interested in invasive species. So the conventional understanding is that invasive plants in Hawaii anyway are bad in some way for the water cycle. They're bad for water resources. They somehow reduce or degrade water in some way. And But there wasn't really much scientific work to um, really base that on, just observations of uh, without instrumentation or anything. So we started looking into those issues and studying uh, how some of the invasive plants, particularly invasive trees, mm-hmm. influence the water cycle by by having higher evapotranspiration. So evapotranspiration is the total amount of water going from the land to the atmosphere, going up into the air. So it's the evaporation, which is, you know, from wet leaves and puddles and wet soil and transpiration, which is evaporation that takes place through the tiny pores in the leaves of the plants. And so does it make a difference if you have, for example, intact native ohia hapu'u forest, which would be an intact native ecosystem in wet areas in Hawaii? Or instead of that, you have strawberry guava, which is a, a tree that's not native to Hawaii, comes from the Americas, and grows prolifically and is the most extensive invasive tree in Hawaii. Does it make a difference? And so we've been trying to answer that question for a long time. And the evidence that we have so far says, yes, that guava uses more water, at least in the climates that we've studied it in. Mm -hmm. It evaporates and transpires more water than the native forest does. So if you replace the native forest with this invasive tree, strawberry guava, you will have less water remaining on the land because more of it goes to the atmosphere. So that's less water that goes into the groundwater and less water that recharges streams. And therefore that is a negative. That's that's mm-hmm. water taken mm-hmm. away that's available for other things. Yeah. We we do think that's the case. And we do think it makes sense, at least in certain climates, that that may be a kind of a general characteristic of invasive trees, at least some invasive mm-hmm. trees. Because why are they invasive? To be invasive, a species has to outcompete the native species some way. Mm-hmm. Right. And one way, not always, it's not always the way, but one way they can do it is by growing fast. And plants that grow fast also use water fast. Use more water, yeah. 
Right, right. Makes sense. Water because they both control through the, the leaves. Yeah. So there's gas exchange that facilitates photosynthesis. That's all that's driving growth. And if those if that gas uh, exchange is very fast, that means the stomata are open. That lets the carbon dioxide go in. It also lets the water vapor go out. And so when you have high photosynthesis, you have high transpiration. So that is, you know, an idea that has been driving our research on in that mm -hmm. area. And we have seen it at least for some species in some areas, but it, we don't have complete answers for the general question about whether basically plants always use more water. And it's like important, I think, just general context for people who aren't really familiar, but just the extent mm -hmm. to which that this is pervasive in Hawaii in terms of these invasive species. It's not just that they're like out there in the mix with for native forests, which is the case some, in some places, but also that it's where it's just 100% dominated by yeah. these. I mean, some places just guava. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the, the numbers are about like 30% of our land cover you know, total is like these non-native forests. So it's it's pretty, it's a pretty big impact, big change in, in water cycling. Yeah. And also to describe what these trees look like. I mean, if you're looking at guava, vivi, or whatever you want to call it um, in the forest, they can like be just this dense wall <laughs> of trees super yeah, close mean... together. Very little, if anything, growing on the tree trunks, very <laughs> slick. There's just not a lot of like plants growing on plants, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas ohia is sort of like the opposite of that. Um, you know, it's just these like multi-layered native forests, you know, that have like mosses and all of these different, you know, strata within. So they look very different just just to the casual observer going in and, and they apparently are behave differently. There's probably numerous other ways, but one other way I wanted to mention about why changes in our land cover affect the water cycle. And the, the, another thing that's happened in Hawaii from two centuries ago uh, was that a lot of forest was cleared Mm -hmm. and replaced with pasture. Yeah. Right? And so that's, you know, a source of a lot of these um, non-native grasses that Clay mentioned that are really mm -hmm. a problem for our fire hazard. But they, they also, it's a big change in the landscape. And so if you take away trees and replace it with grass, generally that is going to give you more water because you reduce the amount of transpiration because grass doesn't yeah. trans transpire and evaporate water as fast as trees mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, but in the mountains in Hawaii, where a lot of these pastures are, especially on Maui and the Big Island, there's a fog zone. Below the inversion layer is a fog zone. And that fog blows through because we have strong winds almost everywhere in Hawaii most mm -hmm. of the time. That so blows through the trees. And those clouds are formed by little tiny drops of water. That's not water vapor you see. That's actual water. Mm -hmm. And that normally, if you're just over land with no vegetation on it, it would just blow over the land and that would be it. There wouldn't, wouldn't add any water to the landscape. But if you have plants, especially trees, sticking up into the wind, Mm -hmm. It catches those droplets, harvests those drops out of the clouds, and it drips down and adds water to the ecosystem and to the watershed. And the amount of water that can be added that way is way higher than you might think. We've actually yeah. measured this in several places. For example, on Maui, we measured at a place that gets around 100 inches of rainfall a year, and we found that fog added another 40 inches. So 40% wow. on top of the rainfall was added mm -hmm. by capture of fog droplets. So if you remove the trees, you don't get that anymore. Yeah. And so that takes away that kind of precipitation, a kind of, in a way, it's a kind of rainfall that comes mm -hmm. from capturing 
droplets directly from the clouds. So that's another. There's another thing I've read a bit about is that, and again, this is like the jury's really out. I think there's just more research needs there, but that one thing that can happen is that the root structure of grasses actually can contribute to more like sheeting on the surface. So once the water falls, you know, and you have all these big complex root systems from roots, it actually provides pathways for the water to infiltrate in the soil. Whereas when you get these matted root systems on grass that, you know, some studies have shown that it actually causes more surface runoff um, mm-hmm. leading to erosion and to the, all the other impacts downstream, but it may also affect um, groundwater recharge in that way. Yeah, it could it'd be highly uh, species and site specific. And but yeah. you know, think of um, uh, ginger. Too is another right. one that just covers the surface, right? Nothing gets right. through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Another hor- pretty horrible weed. That's- oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah, we had it when we moved here to Honokaa. My dad, we bought my dad's house. He had a patch of it planted in our house. I mean, in front of our house, and Chuck was having PTSD. All the time he would kill it and keep a hulu, and he's like, the first thing he did was just like pack it down, put tarps over it, and just like he he was like, this is not going to stay. This has to go. Sorry, Dad, you're going down. (laughs) Put hapuu in there there instead. They're doing great. Can we do have time for like one last? I mean, I think the last question we had on here is I think a good one. Exactly. You read my mind, please. We have a pretty specific question related to this, but in the sense of like you changing roles now in the Water Resources Research Center, how has it changed your perspective on the work that you've been doing? And you see it more directly connecting to like societal needs in that sense. And and how is it changing your perspective on water just broadly? But how has that pivoted your work? Oh, that's a, that's a, it's big, a big question. Big question. <laughs> I'll try to cover all of it as, as much as I can. First of all, I'll start off by saying I was a graduate assistant at Water Resources Research Center over 40 years ago. So oh, it's kind of oh. a return. Oh, neat. <laughs> That's cool. My roots. Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, yeah, I had a. I wrote a proposal and got a, got got it funded to do my PhD research through Water Resources Research Center. And then after oh, I got my cool. PhD, I worked there for three years as a soft money researcher, kind of oh, like a cool. postdoc. And um, so I'm kind of returning to that. But you know, the way it's changed my perspective is first of all forced me to broaden my knowledge a bit and my understanding of the uh, breadth of problems the mm-hmm. you know that are uh, surround our water resources in Hawaii and to gain a lot of respect for the engineers and water chemistry and water quality experts that we have in the water resources research center who do amazing work and that is and and just how important that is and yeah. I I can just point to events of the last couple of years of the Red Hill fuel contamination event yep. and this recent fire that's causing yep. water contamination events that to have those experts here is just so important to everybody in Hawaii. And we're so lucky to have them. So I, you know, my job is to help them do their jobs and make sure, you know, I do everything I can to help them get, get funding to support their work and, space and equipment and everything else they need and just facilitate and help, you know, broadcast what they do and just give kudos to all all of our water resources research center faculty, staff and students, postdocs and project funded researchers out there that are doing just tremendous work. So yeah, I've had to learn about all those things or learn more than I used to know and put more 
of my attention on those problems rather than focus just on the things that I'm, you know, that I know. Get into like this whole municipal world of like the yeah. service part of it and what, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's so directly connected to people's lives in such yeah. a powerful way. It is. And that's, that is kind of a rewarding part of the job is to be able to have a better connection with uh, community members. And even though they're not always happy um, you know, <laughs> with what's going on, but well, they probably shouldn't be in some of these cases. So yeah, they shouldn't be. yeah. but it, it is a role that kind of shied away from early in my career and got to be more involved in uh, enjoy more and more, you know, got older and you were going to say as you grew up, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I think I've done growing. Uh, <laughs> up, anyway, uh, but uh, the job that I have now puts me in contact with not only community members, but also our government agencies like our mm -hmm. water utilities and the water commission and yeah. agencies of county and state government and non-government entities like the Nature Conservancy and so forth who have interests in various ways in, in water. Yeah. But I would say also that this job has, despite being busy with a bunch of other things, that it has actually enabled me to pursue some things in my own research that I've wanted to do. You know, it's facilitated getting more funding and more support to do some things. And one of the things that I'm really happy about is the Hawaii Mesonet. Yeah, please plug this. We didn't we didn't really get to talk about this is this is a big deal. Yeah, I did want to kind of squeeze that in. But so this is uh, something that grew out of that network of stations that I started, you know, on Maui 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that gradually dawned on me and others that, well, we should have the, a network like this across the whole state. And so we finally were able to, to get the support to do that. And we were in the process of building out a network that will, if we include all the stations we were already operating, plus all the new ones will be about 100 stations across the entire state, all measuring a big range of different variables. So not just rainfall and not just air temperature, but humidity, wind speed, wind direction, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. solar radiation, net radiation, soil moisture, all these variables that are important for so many things. And they, they're really high quality instruments and everything is telemetered by mostly by cellular devices. So we get the data sent to us you know, every 15 minutes, I think I did mention earlier. So this is a big jump up from what we've had in the past. And so I'm really grateful that I've been able to do that. And that's partly because of having taken this job. Yeah. And I think it's important just for context too, that the variability in weather and climate is like, it's so incredibly high here. It's is always the thing when I've talked to these mainland um, fire scientists that they, it's like, you have to give them this briefing and like kind of <laughs> understand like the gradients that you're talking about. But yeah. then the pukas in the coverage are kind enormous. of enormous. Yeah. Like yeah. the Maui's the classic example, right? Like that West Maui, you know, you're trying to look at stations in Lahaina and Kula, not Lahaina, I mean, uh, Kahului and Kula. And that's kind of, you know, about it. Like as far as getting into that yeah. Southwest and the Western zone there. Yeah. We mentioned earlier that there's a place with 400 inches of rainfall and there's probably places with more than that. And then 10 or 15 miles away, there are places with 20 inches of rainfall a year. Yeah. Yeah. Versus yeah. 400 inches. And so that, that is greater than the, that range is greater than the variability you find in the con continental U.S. There are a few places in the continental U.S. that are drier than, than <laughs> the highest place in Hawaii, which is around 10 inches a year. Right. But there's no place on the continent that's anywhere near 400 no. inches of rainfall a year. So that, span is much greater and it's also true of other variables so temperature range is about the same as the continental u.s humidity solar radiation is much bigger range here 
And so if you think of the number of stations you need to characterize and monitor weather on the continental US, and we're trying to do it here, we should have something like the same number of stations, right? Yeah. To, to monitor <laughs> exactly. that. We have 100 as opposed to many thousands of stations on the continental US. So. And so like for the non-science people out there listening to this, how that's going to impact our lives is that we'll have, for example, better tools to be able to predict fire weather. Is that is, is that correct? Yeah, that's a major one. That's huge, right? I mean, yeah. just being able to gather this information on a, what, on a daily basis, and I don't know what the frequency is. Five minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's major. We we are basically like looking at, when we try to figure out weather, we're looking at stations that are at the airports. Or there are some other ones too. You know, give credit where credit is due. There are other networks out there. Mm-hmm. The National Weather Service maintains okay. networks of weather stations. USGS has weather stations. Sure. The Division of Forestry has a... Division of Forestry, has, uh, forestry yeah. works yeah. with the Rawls Network, which is a federal network, but they also help out with that. There are networks out there. There are individuals that are measuring weather and so forth. So there are lots of stations out there. What we don't have is a managed system where Mm. the weather stations are really all placed everywhere they need to be. Right. And the other big uh, deficiency is that whereas we have lots and lots of stations that measure rainfall, many fewer stations measure air temperature, many fewer than that measure those other variables, and almost none of them measure net radiation, things like that, that we need to really understand the hydrological uh, cycle, the, the water cycle. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. stations we're putting out there measuring all the things we need. We're putting them in the pukas and the gaps where there are there there isn't sufficient coverage and they're all connected so we can get the data right away. Right. And this would be available publicly. That's the biggest thing, right? Uh, HCDP. Yeah. <laughs> it already is. It already is. It's available. Uh, it's available. Okay. Um, that's, plug it. You got to plug it, Yeah, Tom. I know. <laughs> Google the Hawaii Climate Data Portal and you can get, uh, you can just look at climate and weather data to your heart's content and various ways, gridded on maps and station data tables, whatever you want. Yeah. That is still developed. The Hawaii Mesonet, which is this new network of stations, we're developing new data visualization and data access tools that you'll be able to have. But there are ways you can find on the Hawaii Climate Data Portal website. You can find a place to access the data from those new stations specifically. But um, there's more to come. Very cool. It's very, very cool. Tom, um, we've kept you for way longer, (laughs) at least a few minutes longer than we (laughs) promised. We can't thank you enough. For, yeah, really. You know, it, was, it was pretty awesome to, to grab you. We know you're very busy. And uh, yeah, so yeah, thanks for taking the time. For this, but also for the 45 years you've yeah. been at the University of Hawaii or whatever, and my professor, and you know, now the head of water resources research. Um, you know, everything, all of that, you know, it's service to all the people out there, um, you know, who are just clamoring to know what to expect for hydrology, for drought, for the weather, for the fires, all of it. It's, it's just so important. So thank you again, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, thanks for those kind words. I should, you know, I, I didn't spend enough time talking about all the people who worked with me over the years, you know, yeah. and- just have been really fortunate to work yeah. with Clay and other scholars at the University of Hawaii, but also my own, you know, graduate students and yeah. postdocs. Some really amazing people work for me, and so I give, uh, you know, I couldn't have done it without them. People like Mike Nullet and Abby Fraser and Ron Lennon, you know, those, yeah. 
They're I can really, vouch for many of them. They're all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all of them. I'm sorry I can't mention everybody's name. <laughs> I'm thinking of all of you. You know who you are, listeners. Yes. <laughs>